You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Has the rally run out of steam? The answer may be yes, based on what we're seeing in the options market. We'll look at what's going on there and where the opportunities are right now. And Apple's ambitions, ad ambitions, she said, ambitions. What's the plan? Who are the winners and losers? And how will it affect all iPhone users? We'll tackle it. And the earnings parade continues with Deer, Applied Materials, and Foot Locker. They'll all give us something to glean, whether it's a business cycle barometer, pulse of the consumer. It's coming up in earnings exchange. First, though, let's begin with Dom Chu and those latest market numbers, Dom. Semis, seeds, and shoes. It's like Sally sells seashells by the seashore, right? <laughs> That's that uh, well. I tried. I tried. It was deliberate, very much so. Uh, the the markets right now are very neutral. And, and when I say that, it's not to say that they're up or down, although they're just kind of fractionally, marginally so, but they're right in the middle of the trading range so far today. To give you some idea of the context of that range, the S&P 500, which sits at 42.70 right now, down three whole points, that's just about flat on the session, was at the highs of the day, up 14 points. At the lows of the day, we were down 13 points. So again, tilting again towards the lower side of things, but not by that much. The Dow Industrial is down about 115 points. One third of 1% declines, 33,864. The composite for the NASDAQ just about flat on the session, 12,938, the last trade there. If you're looking for the real outperformer of the day, you'd look no further than energy. It is the big outperformer by a lot. It is up right now, the energy sector spider up about 2%. That's about six times the gains of the next closest competitor sector, which is technology, which is up roughly one-third of 1% to give you an idea of how that's stacking up. WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices up 2.5% back above 90 bucks. APA Corp, Halliburton, Devon Energy, all among the top 10 best-performing stocks in the S&P 500 right now. So keep an eye on that energy trade. We know it's been downside volatile for a while, so this bounce is big. But in the context of the grander scheme of things, maybe not as much. And then... The stock of the day, the biggest contributor to the Dow Jones Industrial Average so far today, which is down on the session again, is Cisco Systems up roughly 6% right now. It's adding almost 20 points to the Dow just by itself. This is after the world's biggest maker of computer networking equipment and the things that run the Internet comes out with better than expected results for profits and sales. It also boosts its full year forecast. It says that some of the supply chain issues around chips are easing. Let's it make more stuff, sell more stuff to customers. Cisco Systems, a big bellwether for technology to watch, Kel. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Now, the sharp market rebound we've seen over the past two months came seemingly out of the blue. So will it fade back into oblivion? For clues on that, we turn to the options market, and Seema Modi has the details. Seema? Kelly, what's so interesting is that equity and options strategists are divided on whether this market bounce can last. Marco Kalanovic, equity strategist as J.P. Morgan, just put out a bullish note pointing to the recent decline in market volatility as supportive for stocks alongside an increase in buybacks. His target, 4800 on the S&P 500. Some investors are looking at options activity to help them navigate the market. Typically, a shrinking put-call ratio is a bullish sign, but Interactive Brokers Chairman Thomas Petterfee sees it as a contrarian indicator. When it goes below 0.7, that is usually uh, telling us that uh, uh, traders are bullish uh, and they are usually wrong. So uh, it, it, it usually forecasts a, a low put core ratio, forecasts a, a bear market. 
He's calling for a bear market. Another concerning data point, call option volume has risen in the last few weeks, breaking a one-year downtrend. Julian Emanuel at Evercore ISI says this surge in volume is coming at a time of year where more caution is normally wanted, and such speculation is certainly not something the Fed wishes to see at this point. Uh, a key data point to keep an eye on, Kelly. All right, Seema, thank you, Seema Modi. Our next guest knows well how to read the options T market leaves and does uh, think the rally could be running out of steam here. Let's bring in Chris Murphy. He's co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Let's pick up there, Chris. What would you add? How, do you, how are you looking at things? Well, one thing I want to point out, um, when we're talking all about this um, put call ratio and the increase in call volumes, uh, we have seen a bit of a resurgence in the uh, message board style meme stock trading. So let's just point out one option, Apple. You know, we've all heard of it. Uh, we looked yesterday, a million calls traded. That's a big number. That's going to decrease put call ratio, increase put volume. But if you look to the next day, how many new positions were established, new open interest, 100,000. So uh, 900,000 of that call volume was opened and closed the same day. That's going to show up in those call volume numbers you just mentioned. It's going to impact put, uh, put call ratio, but it actually doesn't have quite as much of an impact. If you think about it, opened and closed over the course of the day, that's not going to have a lasting impact. What does have a more lasting impact? Uh, you know, in terms of the rally running out of steam, um, you know, positioning is more evened out now. Uh, sentiment is more back towards neutral. Uh, a lot of the shorts have covered. You know, we're, if you're looking at technicals, we did run into some resistance at the 200 day. So those are all going to be larger factors than uh, call volume that's opened and closed uh, in the same day and is typically chasing the momentum as opposed to causing it. And so does that leave you feeling like, OK, we've kind of come back and we're even Stevens now? And, and where do we t what does that typically tell us about the next phase of the of the market move? Well, you know, I would point out that the VIX has come in a lot since the June lows, I think from around 35 down to around 20. But it's kind of found a level around $20. So that could be a sign that investors are looking to start to put some protection back in here as we finish out the summer and head into September. You know, for me, I think it's going to be a little bit more range bound. The easy money, the positioning, the sentiment evening out, that's already happened. I think the next kind of move to the upside is going to be a lot harder. I'd be looking more at um, overwriting and, and even maybe pairing some of these positions at the same time, so long as inflation kind of has rolled over and stays subdued. I think that downside tail is out as well. I'm expecting more of a choppy range bound end to the year, um, you know, from what we're seeing in the options. Are there any individual stock sectors, you, you kind of mentioned maybe types of trades that you would be more inclined to put on right now? You know, um, I would look at some of the big uh, mega caps. You know, let's just talk about Apple, for example. I don't necessarily have one, but you know, it's 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 benefits from so many things. You know, it's kind of almost a flight to safety when the equity market is is having issues. You know, you're not going to get in trouble for for buying Apple. Uh, the downside tail is somewhat supported by that same factor. So you look at a, a you know one of the big mega cap stocks, but you also look at overwriting it a bit if you do think the upside is kind of extreme upside is out of the market. So that's kind of the type of trade. I don't usually pick stocks, but that's the type of trading strategy. You know, long uh, a stock that you're really confident in, but selling some upside because you think it's going to be more choppy. The easy money's been made. That's yeah, perfect. So I was going to ask you about that one, which has been kind of a bellwether lately. What about energy, where we see people 
feeling more bullish, more constructive, um, could even be a spoil sport if it really surges and we run into a lot of problems for the consumer. But I'm curious if you would be making any moves on that front. Well, you know, I think that that's a good point because, you know, if you're looking at your entire portfolio and the one thing that could really derail the market right now is a rebound in inflation. Let's say oil prices start to move higher. We all know about the energy issues in Europe, things like that. So I think it makes sense to have, you know, maybe a greater percentage of your portfolio in the energy sector compared to what percentage energy is in the S&P 500, just because you want to protect yourself from that adverse scenario. So it's a little bit like a hedge in some ways. Absolutely. All right, Chris, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. Coming up, Kohl's slashing its full-year forecast for exactly the reason he was just talking about. Inflation squeezing its core shoppers. Cowan reacting by slashing its price target from 60 to 35. What will it take to turn the stock around now? We will ask CEO Michelle Goss next. Plus, tech, tractors, and Tim's. Results from Applied Materials, Deer, and Foot Locker are on deck. We'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade for all three names coming up ahead on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. Let's take your attention to shares of Qualcomm hitting session highs in the last few minutes as the company reportedly plans to return to the server market with a new chip. Bloomberg is reporting that Amazon is considering buying the new chip. We've reached out to the company. We'll let you know when we have more. That's a 2% pop in shares of Qcom. Meanwhile, Kohl's is slashing its full-year forecast on inflation headwinds. The retailer now expects revenues to fall year-on-year instead of growing slightly. They're also cutting earnings guidance by more than half. Shares are down 6%. So where does the retailer go from here? Let's ask the CEO, Michelle Goss of Kohl's. She joins us with our very own Courtney Reagan. Courtney, welcome and kick things off. Thank you very much. Well, Michelle, thank you for joining us here today on The Exchange. I guess we'll kind of just start with the consumer that you serve. I think there are so many questions as to the health of the American consumer. And we know not every consumer is the same. On your call, you talked about certainly makes sense the high income would not be as affected by inflation as a middle income consumer. But the lower income consumer seems to be doing a little better than middle. What's going on here? Well, Courtney, um, you're absolutely right. Where we are seeing the biggest pressure in our business is that middle income customer. And we saw that come on very suddenly towards the end of May, June by far our toughest month. And as you mentioned, interestingly enough, we're seeing our upper income customers be fine. In fact, we're seeing more customers and they're spending more, but we're feeling that pressure. And if you think about it, and especially in June, you hit 40-year high inflation. Um, They're spending that on food and on gas. And so what's left are those discretionary categories, which largely we play in. And so um, that came on quickly. I will tell you um, the team responded with a lot of agility. Um, The customer's looking for value. So we put more value in, more promotions. Um, So that did help rebound some of our sales in July. But we're also being very prudent for the balance of year, expecting that this pressure will persist. All that being said, Courtney, uh, we do see this as a moment in time. We've navigated these kind of headwinds before. 
And we remain with great conviction on our long-term strategy and where we're seeing that in the doors that we're remodeling and transforming, those are actually working. There's just not enough of those right now. Margins understandably compressed when you ended up having to promote more than potentially planned. A lot of other retailers, though, had to do somewhat similar strategies, especially to move those more discretionary categories. Understanding you may not have the same product makeup as some competitors, even still, though, your margin's far more compressed than others. How do you fix that? How do you turn that around the balance of the year if this consumer remains strained from external factors? Yeah, well, first off, Courtney, as you mentioned, um, we are contemplating that in our guide. So we are expecting the back half of the year to be more promotional as the customer's looking for that value. Um, we're also facing inflationary pressures in our cost of goods and things like freight. Um, you know, how long this is going to go on, not sure, but we are doing lots of things around our business to make sure that we can navigate this period of time. Um, we're managing through our inventory. So like I said, we're promoting, we're clearing the goods that are a little bit more perishable, like the spring goods. Um, we did cut back on our receipts because we had originally planned for a stronger back half of the year. That being said, we still have plenty of new product coming in for the ever important holiday season. Um, and we're just, we're tightening the belts on things like expenses. You've just got to buckle down during this time, recognizing that we'll get through it. Um, we continue to be a very healthy and stable company. And importantly, um, we remain committed to our long-term strategy. So while this is going on, we're continuing to invest to build out those remodeled stores, which have, of course, the beautiful Sephora shop uh, front and center. Is, is cash going to be an issue for you? Inventories are high, up 47%, understanding there was some purposeful build in that number, but your cash balance relatively low. Is this something we need to be concerned about as you stay committed to the dividend? You know, if you look at Kohl's over time, we have always had strong operating cash flow, strong free cash flow. You know, what we're navigating right now, I'd say two things. One is we're continuing to invest in our stores both the remodels and putting the Sephora's in. Um, and that is, you know, that's a short-term impact. And um, as we sit here today and we look at the valuation of the company, we see an opportunity around buying back some of our shares. So we reiterated that we're doing an accelerated share repurchase of $500 million. So um, this is a short-term thing. Look forward, our cash flow will be absolutely fine over time. And again, we have a very strong history of that. Michelle, it's Kelly here. If I may, and I, I totally understand your point about this being short term, but a lot of analysts will always say being in the middle is kind of a tough place to be. Would you ever think about trying to go more specifically up market or to the value segment of the market for the longer run? You know, it's a it's a great question. When you think about Kohl's, um, we serve 65 million customers across the country and online. So we're very broad. And yes, um, we have a lot of customers, as does America, in that middle income. We serve upper income and even, even some on the lower side. For me, it's about relevance. And at a time like this where it's about value, um, showing up um, with sharp price points, relevant promotions, our private brands. But on the flip side, our premium brands are doing very well. We've introduced a whole bunch of those recently, Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein. And then just, you know, as we think about Sephora, I mean, it's a very elevated, prestigious beauty experience. Our shoppers are shopping across price points. And, you know, relative to the success of the partnership, you know, we had already had plans to do 850 shops. And we just announced today we're going to take that to the entire chain um, in the future. So we're working with Sephora on perhaps a smaller concept to go in our smaller stores. 
Michelle, before we let you go here, I don't know if we've had the opportunity to talk to you on air since the the deal or potential deal to go private ended up falling apart for market reasons or whatever. But um, obviously there was an offer at one point to buy the company for $64 a share. You're now sitting at below 32. Do you feel like you failed your fiduciary duties as a board to sell the company at that high price? You know, what I would say, Courtney, is first off, um, the board had tremendous diligence and rigor around this process. And so um, navigating for, you know, really since the beginning of the year, engaging with multiple bidders, I mean, the the reality is that there was never an actionable bid over $60. Um, as the work was done um, and things came to conclusion, based on the financial markets and the retail environment, there wasn't an actionable bid. So the process concluded. And um, I think everybody on both sides did their homework. But at the end of the day, there really wasn't a, a bid for us to react to. So um, we're now fully focused on driving our business forward and serving our customers. And you've got a big half of the year to go, certainly with a balance of back to school and holiday. Michelle Goss, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, Michelle and Courtney, thanks to you both. That really, really appreciated. Still ahead, Apple is on pace for its longest weekly winning streak in over a year now with that 30% pop from its lows two months ago. Can its advertising ambitions now propel it to new all-time highs? We have that story on The Exchange after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Dow had been down 136, so we're off the session lows, but it is still the only one in the red right now. Well, the S&P is up two points and the Nasdaq is up 23, so a mixed bag here. And let's check on shares of Bed Bath & Beyond, which are now plunging 20% today after Chewy founder and GameStop chairman Ryan Cohen revealed he plans to sell his entire stake in Triple BY of nearly 10 million shares. Despite today's move, the stock is still up 260% this month, but his actions are certainly coming under criticism. Whitney Tilson saying he filed a complaint with the SEC. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? Same man involved in two meme stocks. There you go. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Right now, lawyers from media companies are asking a federal judge in Florida unseal the affidavit used in the search warrant for President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. They argue the release is in the public interest, but the Justice Department says it could compromise its ongoing investigation. In Ohio, two former fraternity members were sentenced to jail after a March 21 hazing death at Bowling Green State. Both men were acquitted of more serious charges back in May and will only serve six weeks in jail. Six other members of the fraternity have pleaded guilty to various charges, though none will serve more than a month in jail. The Big Ten Conference has announced a $7 billion media rights deal with three television networks, Fox, NBC, and CBS, will begin airing Big Ten sports in 2023. The California schools UCLA and USC will join the conference in 2024, and they will be able to share in the biggest sports media deal in college sports ever. Tonight on the news, former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weiselberg has pleaded guilty to tax fraud charges. What does that mean for ongoing investigations into the former president and his business? That's the business tonight on the news at 7 p.m. Eastern. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thank you very much, Tyler Matheson. 
Still ahead, three more names about to report results. You see them there. Only one is a long-term winner, according to our next guest. The name and how to position for all three coming up in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, and today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Applied Materials, Deer, and Foot Locker. So a key read on the semis, the industrial cycle, and the consumer. Let's start with the chip maker. Amet reports after the bell today. It's 34% off the highs despite a 17% pop over the past month. And those rivals like Micron and NVIDIA have already warned of slowing demand. Uh, this one could be singing the same tune as China accounts for about 30% of revenues. Dominic Chu is here with the story. Quint Tatro is here with our trades today. He's founder and president of Jewel Financial. Dom, kick things off. All right, so the semiconductor trade, like you talked about, is so key for most, so many traders and investors out there, Kelly, because many traders treat the semiconductors as a leading indicator for technology, and then by extension, technology a leading indicator for the overall market. Why? Because technology is the biggest sector in the S&P 500. So applied materials could be an interesting leading indicator because in the semiconductor industry, right, this is a company that makes the equipment that makes computer chips. So if you're looking for the leading, leading, leading indicator, <laughs> applied materials or AMAT could be it. Now, if you take a look at what traders are going to be watching, besides the top line results, they're going to be looking at any kind of forecast signal that applied materials has, and certainly any commentary about the supply chain shortages, the chip crunches that we've seen. Now, we've heard Cisco just yesterday say that they are seeing some signs of an easing of that chip supply chain issue, which is helping them sell more product. So applied materials could add to that narrative overall. Now, as for what traders are expecting, not a terribly volatile report. The options market is implying what could be a 4% move up or down. And by the way, Kelly, I say not as much fireworks there because 4% up or down is roughly what applied materials has traded in the past four quarters on earnings days, though I will point out each of the last four quarters on earnings days, Kelly, it has been down after the report. Back over to All you. All right, Quint, are you a buyer of this leading, leading, leading indicator? I am, Kelly, and I think Dom did a phenomenal job basically outlining in simple terms what this company does. And I think if you use your, your noggin, right, this is a company that has seen a, a pretty significant slowdown because we had a terrible chip shortage. I mean, basically, we had seen a shutdown in manufacturing and semiconductors for, what, almost two years. Now we are going to start to see a huge ramp up in the manufacturing of those chips and semiconductors. And ultimately, who does that benefit? Well, as Dom so eloquently pointed out, it benefits applied materials. Now, the report itself, I mean, we're not looking for fireworks just as the option market ensues, but any sort of weakness on present uh, numbers, because they're, you know, look, not going to be all that great or stellar. We think it's a buying opportunity. Ultimately, I think that this company is going to give a better than anticipated projection going forward. Uh, and ultimately, I think this is a long-term winner. It's relatively cheap, trading 12, sorry, 13 times forward earnings. Even with the earnings estimates at 12%, very little debt, 
It's a buy in our book. All right. Maybe a good sign then uh, that you're feeling that way. Let's turn our attention to Deer, which reports before the bell tomorrow. It's been on a tear. It's up 7% this year, while the industrials are down about the same amount. But its shares have dropped on three of the last four reports, and they're still around 12% short interest. Seema Modi here with the story. What will you be watching, Seema? Well, Kelly, the persistent rise in food prices. Wall Street wants to know whether that's resulting in higher demand for its ag equipment. Typically, when prices rise, you start to see production increase, not just here in the U.S., but other key food markets like Brazil and Europe, and that results in farmers buying more tractors and other agriculture equipment. Is that what CEO John May is seeing this time around? Now, expectations are really high going into this report. About 65% of analysts are bullish on this stock. It's risen about 22% in the past four weeks. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, there are incentives there, Kelly, tied that could potentially benefit John Deere and the rollout of its uh, electric tractor that would run on batteries in 2026. Can they speed up that timeline with these new credits? That is what uh, analysts will look for some clarity on from CEO John May when he speaks to shareholders tomorrow on the call. And, and lastly, supply chain. We've had a divergent view, divergence amongst the industrials on how the supply chain picture is is sort of forecasted for 2023. Caterpillar really couldn't provide that guidance, right? Whereas Cummins in the engine space said, no, things are actually getting better. Where does John Deere stand? And their 2023 order book, too, will be key. Very interesting. So, Quint, I know you're concerned about the debt levels. Uh, what do you think overall about the trade here? Yeah, the trade for me is a sell. It, it continues to be, and I've been wrong on this one in the past, as noted. I mean, it just keeps going higher, even though it's well off highs right now. Um, it's been a very nice trending stock. But what keeps us away from this company is basically the high debt levels. Now, to a degree, that's their business model, financing very large pieces of equipment. But ultimately, it's also not a cheap stock. I mean, it's trading basically uh, you know, 14 times forward earnings, and those earnings are set to grow at, at 10%. Uh, we could hear a rosy picture because of you know, the agricultural move that we've seen and a lot of the you know, food products and so forth, and that could have led to an uptick in demand. But again, long-term, this is a company that I just steer clear of because of debt levels. All right. Now, running away from the deer. Uh, let's get to our final name now then, which is Foot Locker, reporting before the bell tomorrow. And shares plunged nearly 30% back in February when they warned they'll be selling fewer Nike products going forward. That was once their biggest supplier. But they also posted a surprise earnings beat in Q1, guided higher uh, for Q2, and the shares are up 25% in the past month. Courtney Reagan is back with more on this one for us. Court? Yeah, Kelly, the uh, share price reaction can be pretty volatile in either direction for sure on a number of different headlines. We'll see what happens happens tomorrow. But yeah, you had a good point there about the company last quarter actually posting a surprise beat for both revenues and profit. And they had a pretty good forecast here coming into the second quarter. But we know things markedly changed for the consumer in some pretty big ways in May, June and July when it comes to the impact of inflation and them just having to pay more for things like gas and food and housing. Will that impact what they spend on sneakers, especially if they want Nike and Foot Locker has much less of it now? That is an issue that analysts are trying to figure out how Foot Locker will work through. At one point, I think they had 70% of their assortment or their sales was Nike, and it's going to eventually get down to about 55% as Nike calls back some of its own inventory. So what's been filling in the difference, and is it selling as well? I think there's just a lot of questions here. We know that there is some early back-to-school buying, but that's typically more for supplies and less for things like sneakers and athletic gear, which tends to come a little bit later in this back-to-school cycle. Again, if you've got the discretionary income, 
income to do it. So there's a lot of question marks here as the company continues to work through some supply chain challenges. We know other companies have been able to work through that at different speeds and with different success. And this happened to be a company that really struggled with some supply chain disruptions. Good point. And it's trading at eight times forward PE, Quint. Little to no debt. Does that make you like it? So this is a tough one for me because ultimately it has the numbers that would really interest me from a from a fundamental perspective, as you mentioned, little to no debt. I think the, the management decision to shift away from the focus on Nike was really a positive, but ultimately we're still faced with uh, what looks to be a nine to 10% decline in revenues on top line. And then, you know, ultimately what's gonna be a 60% decline year over year in EPS, that's if they hit their numbers. So, I mean, even though they have decent fundamentals, you've got a stock that's in decline. So I think, again, management's decision to shift away was a good one from Nike, but we wanna see them really right the ship and really start to see an uptick in the revenues and the earnings. And with the inflationary pressure, uh, you know, with the job, with the demand, or with the difficulty of employment, I just think this is too many headwinds for this company. It's a sell in our books. All right, Courtney, thanks. Quint, or thanks to you as well for all those trades today. Quint Tatro with Jewel Financial. Two voting Fed members speaking right now and making some strong headlines about the direction of rates. Let's get to Steve Leisman with the details. Steve? Kelly, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard saying that he is leaning toward a 75 basis point rate hike at the September meeting. Uh, obviously, this flies in the face of some of the dovish takes that have been out there, both on the minutes yesterday and in response to the pivot uh, that was perceived from uh, the chairman uh, at, at the press conference last week. So the issue is this. Um, this is not dramatically different from where Bullard has been all along. He still seems to be by the way, this is a Wall Street Journal uh, interview that was done. He still seems to be in line with this idea of 375 to 4 percent by the end of the year. Uh, there are other other folks are in line with that. So uh, this is close to where the market is. If you look at the Fed rate outlook, Kelly, uh, he's uh, the, the market's at three and a half. Bullard's at 375 to 4 percent. So uh, if you do the 75 in September, you know, you still have, what, another 100 or so to go uh, in the next two meetings. That could be 250. So he's more aggressive, more aggressive than the overall um, uh, uh, committee, but not necessarily more aggressive than that much more aggressive where the market is right now. But this, there's been this 50, 75. It's interesting, Kelly. I do not see much of a change in the probabilities. We were at 60 percent probability of a 50 this morning. And we're still like at 57, so just down a little bit, really, a little bit more more uh, uh, leaning towards the 75, but not the odds on favor right now. Esther George also saying that uh, she was encouraged by the July inflation report, but no time for Vicky Lab. She still sees a significant uh, uh, difference between supply and demand in this economy. So Esther George also on board. Uh, what's happening, Kelly, I think you may understand is um, the market's perceiving this pivot. The market is perceiving these rate cuts next year, and the Fed is leaning against it. Bullard saying again, as he told us as well, that um, uh, it's premature for the market to be uh, counting on rate cuts next year. It's fascinating. And uh, 288 for the 10-year. We'll see how this continues to play out in markets. Steve, thanks for bringing that to us, our Steve Leesman. Coming up, $54 billion. That's how much federal aid airlines received during the pandemic to help offset their losses. But now the major carriers are making money again, and the labor unions have a very specific request. We'll tell you what it is after this break. Welcome back. U.S. airlines are making money again after the pandemic effectively stopped air travel in its tracks. 
Back then, the major carriers received billions in federal aid to keep paying workers, but with the aid came stipulations. One of those was that the money could not be used for stock buybacks. That restriction expires at the end of September. And now multiple airline worker unions are campaigning against the return of buybacks, urging the likes of Delta and United to invest in operations and employees instead. Let's get to Phil LeBeau to discuss and share these details. This is really a pitching them directly against management, Phil. It is, Kelly. And let, I, I want to be clear about something. Uh, before the break, you said, hey, they received $54 billion in, in aid from the federal government. That was not money that went into the coffers of the airlines. That was passed through the airlines directly to the employees. And the whole point of that $54 billion was Congress wanted to make sure that if the pandemic was over in a matter of months and we saw a return to travel, that there would not be disruptions that we later on saw, that we saw later on because so many people left the industry like they did in other industries as well. So with that as a backdrop, keep in mind that the airlines have not been buying back stock since they got the original agreement to pass through that aid to their employees. Now, they can after September 30th, but when I've talked with executives at different airlines, that's not in the offing anytime soon. Sarah Nelson, who's the president of the Airline Flight Attendants Association, out with a, a strongly worded statement today, not necessarily a warning as much as her saying, Look, you better spend the money on the employees before you spend money on a share buyback, saying we can't allow executives to spend one dime or send one dime to Wall Street before they fix operational issues and conclude contract negotiations that will ensure pay and benefits and keep and attract people to aviation jobs. The interesting thing here is, Kelly, as you take a look at the airline stocks going back before the pandemic, and you saw the big sell-off back in uh, February, early March of uh, 2020, the interesting thing here, Kelly, is that no other industry do you hear people saying companies should not be allowed to buy back their stock. And there are other companies that are short-staffed, who cannot find enough help, who are buying back their stock. So the question becomes, why should the airlines not be allowed to do that as well? Again, no indication that they're planning on doing that, but why should the airlines yeah. not be allowed to buy back their stock when other industries are? That was just my quick question, Phil, is are any buybacks currently planned to your knowledge? No, no, none are currently planned. And remember, they just swung to profitability. Uh, their big focus right now, generally speaking, and when you talk with the managements of uh, the different airlines, finding the staffing. I mean, that is first and foremost on their priority list. And keep in mind, the airline unions, whether it's the flight attendants or pilots, they're in contract negotiations. So to a certain extent, they've got the bully pulpit, if you will, the public pulpit. And they're saying, hey, no spending money on buybacks. Well, you've got to buy, get us straightened out with our contracts first. So we'll likely hear more of this in the weeks and months to come. Very interesting. Heating up. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up after a majority of users opted out of allowing third-party apps on their iPhones to track them for advertising purposes, Apple is now poised to place ads in its apps on those same phones. We have the details next. Welcome back, everybody. Apple's had a monster comeback the past couple months. It's up 18% just the past month alone and back within 5% reach of its all-time highs. And despite that ad recession some social media companies are complaining about, and to some extent that Apple has caused, the tech giant is now ramping up its 
own ads and giving them prime real estate. Steve Kovac is here with that story. Julia Borston has the fallout across the tech and media landscape. And Laura Martin, Needham Senior Internet Analyst, joins us with the fallout for stocks. Welcome, everybody. Steve, let's kick it off with you. How is this going to affect my user experience? <laughs> yeah, Kelly, let me explain this because this has been all over the news last week. So here's what's really happening. Apple's iOS privacy policies have been hurting companies like Meta's ability to target ads since last year. Meanwhile, you have Apple, which has been beefing up its own App Store ad business. Some of that growth, in fact, comes at the expense of companies like Meta. But you're not going to open up your phone and all of a sudden see ads stuffed in all of your apps. What's really going to happen here is in the near term, Apple is focused on expanding App Store ads. Those are the ads you see when you search for something like Spotify and get an ad for a similar app like SoundCloud. Now, the next move is showing ads for those apps to install on the homepage of the App Store. That's prime real estate. And the reason, app install ads are incredibly lucrative and a great return on investment. That'll help offset some of the slowing growth in Apple services due to those foreign exchange headwinds and the fact people are getting out more instead of buying stuff from the App Store. App install ads are really attractive for Apple. Just take a look at this. Projected to hit $118 billion in spend this year and growing year over year. What isn't happening now, Kelly, at least not right away, Apple is not going to stuff ads on every surface possible. But there are more opportunities for Apple to do it, like Apple TV Plus, which is already showing MLB games for free with ads this season, and, of course, podcasts, Kelly. I'm almost trying not to laugh that just showing ads when you're trying to download an app is, is that lucrative, but I, I totally take your word for it. Incredible. Steve, let's turn to what these changes do tell us about the rest of the tech landscape from Meta and Google all the way down to Snap and Pinterest. Julia Borson with that angle. Julia? Well, Kelly, Apple is tapping into massive value in the ads that will respond directly to consumer intent. Ads in the App Store get consumers to click for an immediate return on investment. And they are also in an environment where consumers are already looking to buy. They're looking to spend money there. Now, we've seen strength in this space at Alphabet. Google search ads grew a faster than expected, nearly 14% from the year ago period. We saw it at Amazon. Its ad revenue grew 18% in the quarter. And also at Walmart, its more nascent ad business grew 30%. This all stands in sharp contrast to Meta. Its users don't come to the platform to either Instagram or Facebook to shop. Meta's ad revenue declined 1% in the quarter. Now, this potential to sell things to people who are already shopping is a key part of activist Elliot's interest in Pinterest. And though Apple isn't rushing to launch ads in other areas, it does have potential in other very valuable ad spaces. First, ads in maps. Snap has talked about the massive opportunity it sees to offer ads from local businesses targeted to where consumers are. And Google's maps are a very valuable spot for its local search ad ads. Now, another key area to watch, audio ads with podcast ad revenue on track to double in the next two years. It's worth noting that Spotify grew its ad revenue, which is, of course, coming from both podcasts and music, 31% in the quarter and Spotify is working to launch audiobooks as well, which may have an ad component. So when Apple is ready, it will have plenty of other very valuable ad opportunities. Yeah, Kelly? Exactly. All right, Julia, thanks. Let's get to the trade now. Apple shares soaring more than 30% since those June lows, just shy of their all-time highs. And my next guest says the ad business would be a big catalyst for the stock. Let's turn to Laura Martin. And Laura, all right, listen, at least now we can say it's sort of priced in, right? What do you think? 
Yep, I think you've got more to go. I think these fangs have seen slowing growth. And so any fang not in the ad business is getting into the ad business, which is $600 billion a year globally with 80% profit margins, Apple being no exception, and Netflix getting into this business also. So, I mean, I struggle with this whole, this whole concept. It does feel a little unfair to me that all of the apps that made their phone a success, they sort of you know, kick them in the back and say, forget it, we're going we're gonna to not let you guys do all this tracking. And then at some point, it sounds like eventually they're going to go ahead and, and do it themselves. Yes. Yeah, so I think one of the unintended consequences of more government regulation is it actually helps the incumbents. So there's a huge EU push right now about privacy and about letting consumers decide whether they want to be tracked off um, off of websites to other websites. So guess who has the most benefit from that? Anybody with first party data. Apple, for example, has a billion unique users with a billion eight screens. And guess what? That's all first party data. So they are all privacy protected. Anything on the Facebook or YouTube or Google search um, websites, that's first party data. They all benefit from two billion users a month using their services. Apple's average customer uses their service five hours a day. Right. Will they be at risk if we all become a little bit more savvy about that? I'm not saying that we'd stop using the iPhones, but that we or regulators or somebody starts going, okay, you know, maybe others can't track you the way that they once did, but why should Apple have that privilege? Nope. First party data. So the difference is consumers, the, the regulators care about consumer choice. So when you buy an iPhone, you basically give them permission to use your data in all ways, right? And then they also ask you, would you like us to use your health data? And you can say no, but they're gonna ask you, can we serve you ads? And you're gonna say yes upon setup of your iPhone. Is, do, you, do you think people at some point would say no? I mean, would that really be a viable option? I don't think so because I think exactly what we've heard on this program is Apple is gonna say, instead of down, downloading Spotify, would you prefer to download SoundCloud for $3? And the consumers can say yes or no. And Apple's going to get a cut if you say yes. Right. By the way, they get a cut if you say no, too, because they get a cut of everything on their platform. Right. So this then resolves the issue in what sense for the rest of the companies you cover? You know, the ones that don't have this first party data access, what are their options now? So um, basically, it just means that you have to command consumer attention, and you, which is great for the incumbents. Um, because first party data will be protected. And so you'll be able to ask consumers, if you want to use my website, do I have permission to serve you ads? And you're going to say using your data and you're going to say yes. Where, where it will be less helpful is they can't track you once you leave their site. And what we're seeing now is like Snap and Facebook were really good at tracking you off site without you knowing. So when you don't give them permission to do that, their revenue falls. Yeah, it has been eye opening, hasn't it, uh, for everyone? And again, you wrote about this in early August, saying you believe they're in the early stages of building this new mobile advertising platform. And here we are. Laura, thanks for your time today. Nice to see you. Laura Martin with Needham. Still ahead, this logistics name is one of the worst performing transports so far this month. And there could be more pain ahead of its busy season. The details are next on The Exchange.
Welcome back to The Exchange. One more thing before we go. FedEx was the mystery chart we just showed you. It's one of the worst performing transports this month. And just as the company and its competitors are ramping up for the busy season, freight could be facing a big labor dispute. Frank Holland has the details. Frank? Hey there. Uh, Roughly half a million supply chain workers are negotiating new contracts that have expiring contracts. Just flat out say they need more compensation. That includes the White House getting involved in the negotiations for the 120,000 U.S. rail workers. Longshoremen at the Port of L.A. and other West Coast ports, they're currently working on an expired contract. And there are more than 300,000 Teamsters working at UPS that want higher wages. Their contract expires in July of 2023. FedEx's e-commerce-focused unit, FedEx Ground, is operated entirely by outside contractors. That's 6,000 small businesses, the largest of which is Spencer Patton. He's also the organizer of the annual meeting of contractors that kicks off in Vegas tomorrow. He says without financial relief, he would have to shut down his business by Black Friday. And he says many other contractors are in the same situation. Our fuel prices have doubled. That has been unprecedented in our business's history and have severely impacted our profit margins. FedEx says it's working to help its contractors financially. They also issued a statement saying in part, we adapted to the tremendous growth of e-commerce and the average annual revenue per service provider business has more than doubled to 2.3 million. Now with market conditions changing, FedEx ground and service providers must all adapt and adjust again. I also spoke with several other contractors who said they're profitable and they're satisfied with their deal. Also talking to Bernstein about their supply chain outlook with all these negotiations and labor issues in mind, they forecast trucking rates that are 15% lower in the spot market today will continue to decline along with air and ocean freight. Kelly, back over to you. Frank, thank you very much. Speaking of the supply chain, why China's heat wave could bring even more disruptions. We'll delve into that ahead on Power Lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.